This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. anxious about the current state of our planet, you're not alone. These feelings coined as eco-anxiety and climate anxiety have been affecting all of us in different ways. This week, we're resharing a past episode we love featuring Dr. Renee Lertzman, a researcher, educator, and eco-engagement strategist. We talk with her about what eco-anxiety is and how we can turn these feelings into positive actions that are good for our own mental well-being and the planet. Let's get into it. All right. Hi, Good Together listeners. We are so excited today to talk about an issue that is very near and dear to both my heart and also your heart, I know, because this is something our community has been asking us a lot about, which is the topic of climate anxiety and how we can really turn some of these feelings that we're having into positive actions for the planet. And we're very excited to welcome Dr. Renee Lertzman to the podcast. So she is a researcher, educator, and eco-engagement strategist, I love that, (laughs) who uses psychological insights to really change our approach to the environmental crisis. So she's actually taken her training, um, you know, as a psychosocial researcher and taken it to, um, you know, help people take action and create impact positively for for climate and sustainability issues. So welcome, Renee. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Lovely to be here with you. (laughs) Amazing. So I love that you have taken your background in a space, you know, that wasn't, you know, I guess, traditionally sustainability related and realized that there was an opportunity here to, to create change. So I wonder if you can kind of start us off by, by telling the, the audience sort of how and why you decided to enter the space of sustainability and psychology. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question because I don't think it, it really occurred to me not to. Um, it, the way it all happened was uh, very early on when I was a freshman in college and I was very identified as being a psychologist. So I knew I was going to be a psych major. Um, I sort of saw a a life for myself as maybe having a private practice, Uh, but I knew I was very drawn to psychology. And around that same time, that first year, I just happened to take an environmental studies elective. And it was one of those one-on-one classes where, you know, it's an introduction. And, you know, I was happy taking a bunch of other classes at the same time as we we do during those early years. And so there were a lot of inputs going on. And what happened for me was uh, very unexpected, which was I found myself um, very emotionally, very um, just, uh, you know, cognitively really impacted by what I was learning about in the environmental studies class. And I was 
very confused and disoriented by the fact that we weren't actually addressing that in the psychology classes I was taking. So I, I immediately from the beginning had this experience of a disconnect and wanted to sort of get, you know, um, get a better sense of what was going on there and to marry these worlds. So it started very, very early on for me where it didn't make sense after that point to see these as distinct um, areas or fields. And so that really set me on my journey. Um, and it's been very, um, you know, a, a very indirect journey, right? Because yes. at the time, this was in the late 1980s. So uh, there wasn't really a field, um, you know, it was very much, I was just kind of piecing it together um, on my own. And the other, I think, important piece of this is that I realized that to look at the psychological um, aspects of climate and environmental issues also has a lot to do with how we communicate and how we, um, you know, uh, talk about these things that, that it couldn't, couldn't really be separate. Absolutely. So, you know, I ended up doing a degree in specifically in communications um, for that reason to just, again, get a better sense of what is environmental and climate communication? What does that even mean? And how do we go about this uh, from a more, you know, intentional and psychologically um, informed way? Absolutely. I mean, I love that you had this background because I feel like it mirrors so many of our own where you know, we're going about our daily lives with one path or another, we come across some frankly disturbing information oftentimes about the state of the world, the environment, et cetera. And we do feel, you know, we feel confused. We're not really sure what we can do. And, you know, if we really care about it, then we, you know, typically will take steps, which I know you and I will talk about a little bit, but in general, I feel like sometimes there's like camps of people who seem like they care and camps of people who seem like they don't care. And if you're in the other camp, you might be thinking, well, am, am I, what's the matter with me? Yes. <laughs> you know, like, am I the only one or, you know, how am I even supposed to go about thinking about these things? And yeah, just depending on who you talk to, you can get all sorts of answers. And right. I, mm -hmm. I love that that was your path because I also went down a very similar one. And, um, you know, I love that you are a founding member of what's called the Climate Psychology Alliance, um, which we we did a little bit of research and we found out that, you know, that actually focuses on addressing and responding to climate anxiety, which is really what we wanted to talk about today. So I wonder if you can explain to us what is climate anxiety? Like, what is eco-anxiety? I think I have an idea in my head, but I bet you it's a little bit different than the way you describe it. <laughs> I'd love to hear what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so one of the reasons why we founded this podcast and this company was because, you know, we as consumers felt the, the, the uh, you know, emotions I talked about earlier, and we didn't feel like there was a space to talk about things from a realistic perspective or one of action. Um, so we, we try and stay positive here because I personally think that positivity can help motivate, but we'll talk about different ways people are motivated, I'm sure. Um, but when I think about climate anxiety or eco-anxiety, I think about 
this barrage of information being sent to us, whether it's talking about, um, you know, rising sea levels or animals going extinct left and right. And there's such a tendency for most people, myself included, sometimes to be like, I can't watch this. I can't read mm-hmm. this because it's, it's going to overwhelm me. And so yes. that's kind of where I think about it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very similar to my experience. So, um, you know, the there's a lot out there right now uh, on this topic of eco-anxiety, climate anxiety. Um, there's different interpretations. I think essentially it's simply referencing the very normal and natural and understandable experience that people have when contemplating and confronting our environmental and climate situation. So I think it's very important first to situate this as very um a very healthy and normal response, and it's a signal of our vitality. So, you know, I, I think it's important to reframe anxiety. And, and a number of researchers I work with um, are on this wavelength of really wanting to reframe the discomfort, the overwhelm, the the difficult feelings that we have are actually a crucible through which we pass towards becoming more um engaged and active, but it's not something to just kind of skip over, that it's actually, it's a crucible, it's a catalyst, and it's important information. So if we relate with our anxiety, our feelings, that desire to turn off the, the channel um, or to tune out, that that's, that's data that we can inquire into and we can say, well, what is, what's going on here? What is, um, What's underlying this and what is often underlying this for us is that I care. I, mm-hmm. I actually am, I care deeply. I love, um, you know, the planet and, and life and, and care about, you know, beings um, that it's really rooted in love and it's really rooted in care. And when we feel that there's a threat to that, you know, that there's a risk or there's some, some uh, vulnerability there, um, we tend to want to, we, we want to manage it somehow. So the just basic kind of base level, I would say, eco-anxiety, climate anxiety is, you know, is, is our, it's an expression of our care and concern, but it, you know, more specifically speaks to the, I would say, a very unique kind of experience that we have that's not quite like anything else. It's really, um, it's existential. Um, it can often be, if you really unpack what's going on there, you may find that there's a variety of feelings happening. It could be, um, there could be some guilt maybe, like some feeling of um, shame or guilt, like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm part of the problem or yep. what about, you know, the fact I really love my car, whatever those things are that we are now realizing are actually damaging. So it can bring up conflict. And I I talk about this um, in a number of places. You know, I talk about um, ambivalence, which is conflict, like where we feel sort of almost in conflict with ourselves. So that, that can be part of it. And then there can be just pure like fear or anxiety about yeah. uh, what's going to happen and I can't even go there. It's just too overwhelming. It's unthinkable. And then there might be some sadness. There might be some, you know, uh, anger. Um, it could, it could be a whole variety of things, but I happen to think that anxiety 
Um, I've been really focused on anxiety for so many years because I have a lot of it. I am very intimate <laughs> with anxiety. Sure. I'm, I'm out about my anxiety um, because I think it's it's understandable. You know, we don't want to stay there, right? Yeah. Like we don't necessarily want to like dwell in that. But what what I've learned over the years is that when we, um, you know, sort of destigmatize it and we say, you know what, like this makes sense. You know, I make sense. Um, and it allows more space to then think about, okay, well, what do I want to do with this? Exactly. You yeah. Know? I mean, it, to me, it reminds me a lot of, um, you know, the school of thought around being mindful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah. I had the the uh, privilege to take a course called mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, back when I was at Google. Google does an amazing job at doing these things for its employees. But um, I remember very much this school of thought thinking about, well, rather than burying an emotion, like let's kind of take a step back and think about why it exists. And I love that you come back to this place of love and caring because we shouldn't feel ashamed that we love the planet. I mean, that is, a, to your point, a very unique perspective um, on the way that we you know, exist compared to you know, probably other beings who might not have that capability of, of uh, understanding. So I love this. And, um, you know, one of the things that that you and I, I know, wanted to get into and chat even more about was, you know, we are seeing more and more people start to think more about the concept of, of climate anxiety. And um, there's an interesting study that came out of Yale um, that we'll, we'll talk about now. But one of the pieces um, of information that came out of it said that more than 40% of Americans feel disgusted or helpless about climate change. Um, And that was an interesting finding. And I know you and I both have thoughts on that, but I'm curious to know, like, you know, I feel like the whole story is not being told (laughs) with this study. Yeah, that's right. Well, so I appreciate the work that comes out of um, Yale on climate, um, you know, uh, attitudes and communications. I actually think it's more complicated than that. Um, So one thing is I would just want to say from the get-go is that I don't believe actually that people don't care. And I don't believe that people are, um, you know, kind of quote disengaged. I I think that what what we see that, that looks like people not caring is actually under the surface, it's really feeling overwhelmed. Yep. It's feeling powerless. It's feeling maybe in conflict or some, you know, like there are some dilemmas or conflict going on um, that it's very, very complicated. And so I'm wary of any kind of um, categorization that says, okay, this segment of people uh, care a lot. And then this people over here, you know, they they maybe don't care as much. I, I think there's a different way of looking at that, which is through the lens of how are people managing their anxiety? <laughs> Where, um, how, how effectively or not? And yeah. an ineffective way, um, and I don't mean that in any kind of, um, you know, I'm not evaluating that as good or bad. I'm not judging it, is to uh, disconnect and to, to kind of check out. You know, and the reason why that's not very effective is because it doesn't allow us to you know, really be fully connected with ourselves, with what we deeply value and care about. So uh, it's a loss both for us and also for the world, because we all, ideally, we all want us online, you know, like we want all of our creative capacities really like 
activated right now. So, um, so that's my lens is it's, it's really about, um, how are people managing that? What are the contexts that people are in? So a lot of people are in contexts where there's, um, arguably competing um, existential threats. Yeah. So um, we're talking about vulnerable communities, people of color, um, marginalized populations, people who are struggling to, uh, you know, make ends meet, that kind of thing. You know, I wouldn't say people in, in you know, quote, don't care who aren't like where this isn't their primary focus, but to appreciate that they're often competing priorities and competing pressures and, um, you know, factors going on. So there's that. Yeah. Um, and then there's, who are we around? You know, who do we surround ourselves with and who do we have access to? And this is something that's often, I think, overlooked, um, starting to be looked at a bit more, which is really recognizing the power of, being uh, connected with people who we can speak openly about these things with, and we will not, we we won't, we're not fearing, um, you know, retaliation or uh, people saying, "Oh my God, you know, what's wrong with you?" Or because all of that is again, that's people just managing their own stuff. Yes, and then absolutely. projecting it on you. It's like, oh my God, you know, don't tell me again about why I should be eating meat or why I should be riding a bike or you know, and and so we often get that that vibe from people, right? So, yeah. so I think that's another factor, which is that we're all in these uh, in social contexts, social networks that actually have a really big influence and impact on how we uh, kind of navigate and move through these feelings and these experiences. And I think folks listening probably can totally relate to when you're able to just talk about stuff with your friends or family, how that allows you to actually, you know, work through it, get to a place where it's like, okay, like, what are we going to do? Like as a family or as a community or as a group of friends or whatever. But if you can't talk about that stuff, then it tends to sort of stall out and then we end up, um, it kind of goes underground, you know, and then yep. we might feel like uh, we internalize things a little more than we need to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's two points out of what you just said that I, I want to kind of just, just get into. Uh, well, not even get into, just highlight. I mean, first of all, um, to the first point about, you know, competing priorities and really privilege. We hear a lot about that from our community, which is, you're right. People that have other things that are going on that might be a more immediate crisis to their their health and well-being, like oftentimes they just don't have the mental capacity or space to think about this. And so we do want to recognize that, right? And and the other piece is is the community piece. And that's another reason why we got started on this journey together, um, you know, as a company and podcast, because we found actually as we released the podcast, we started getting emails from people who were like, can we talk about this? Like, can we have a space to chat? And so we did create an online space for that. And we have, um, you know, thousands of women that, that come and do this with us on a daily basis through our apps. But I think the reason for this, again, is, is just like what you just said. It's There's so much opportunity to come together with a group of people that share those same thoughts. And it's sometimes I'll hear negative um negative connotations of this by saying, oh, people are putting themselves in echo chambers. And I don't think that's really the right way to look at this. I think if it's it's a way to look at almost like a more of a group therapy session, right? Like mm -hmm. let's all come together, let's discuss what is bothering us. And then 
let's acknowledge that we probably all are sharing very similar thoughts. So then, you know, how do we start to, you know, to turn this into action? Because one of, one of the questions that we had for you, which I think is an interesting one is like, what are the challenges associated with quote unquote treating it? And actually, should we even be trying to treat climate anxiety or should we be trying to kind of use this awareness that our, our minds are giving us to, to, to further action? I'm curious to know more mm-hmm. about that. Right. Well, of course, good together. I mean, yeah, I mean, your whole your whole model is based on recognizing the power of convening. Um, I think that the framing of treating this is not right. Exactly. Um, yep. And I actually think there's some risks with even talking about eco anxiety or climate anxiety as if it's uh, an issue or a problem. Mm. So. It isn't. Um, and I think that um, it's it's important to reframe this from treating to, I like the terminology of navigating. Okay. So when we talk about navigating something, it's not like you're trying to get, you know, like a rid of something or it's like yep. from problems to solution. It's actually recognizing this is an ongoing thing that is part of being alive at this time right now and will continue to be. So I think that if we if we put it through that lens it's like okay how how can I navigate this um how can I be as resilient and um whole and healthy as I can in light of the circumstances. Um, And thankfully, we already know, to your point about mindfulness-based stress reduction, we already know a lot about what promotes um, resilience. We know a lot about what promotes wholeness and health, which has a lot to do with social interaction and connection and community, belonging, feeling like you matter. Um, I think that, you know, one of the missing sort of headlines of this whole climate environmental story is that each human... um, has a fundamental need to feel valued, to feel that you matter, and to feel that you you can contribute to life in some way. Now, for some people, that could be parenting, it could be being a good friend, it could be being an awesome, you know, worker at whatever kind of work one's doing. It could be mentoring, it could be uh, drawing really well, it could be so many things. But you know, humans have an innate need to be creative contributors in some some form or another mm, it doesn't mean yeah. everyone is needs to be like you know ellen macarthur like going around the world whatever you know <laughs> sure. right like it's very important to see it as like it can be super mundane but but that's the gold and so if we think of it that way then we think about our anxiety our feelings about what's going on with climate the environment and the way to 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 approach this is how do i channel these feelings i'm having this experience i'm having in a way where i get to really have that that sense of gratification knowing that i'm channeling my energy in a direction that is really affirming um to who i am and what i uniquely can contribute. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I love it. <laughs> I love that piece because the first of all, the navigation piece and then you're right. Everybody has a unique perspective on what they contribute can contribute. Some people are 
really the type that are going to want to go and organize in person, you know, yep. maybe outside a government entity. There are other people who might like to do a letter writing campaign, which sounds a little bit silly in today's day and age, but you, you can use email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. you can use your voice for other ways. And so, you know, other people might be going to do a trash pickup and there's different, um, you know, ways that we can all get involved. And so I'm curious to know, you know, if somebody's kind of starting from square one, they come to you and they're saying, look, Renee, like I am so overwhelmed. Um, and so can you help me navigate this? Um, is there like a process that you recommend people going through as they seek to turn this, these feelings into action? Or are you kind of just like, Hey, let's, let's find something for you to get out and do right now. I'm curious. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, it's funny. It just came up earlier today. So something's like pointing me here, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) You need to make the process. I do. (laughs) So there's sort of, I would say there's several steps that I could suggest that are kind of like a sequence. Um, So the first is, is it's like, has to do with connecting with yourself and being in touch with your experience and your feelings from a place of real acceptance. So it's really about, I call this a tune or attunement. So yeah. make, really being attuned to yourself and your experience is sort of like the fundamental because when we're not, we are actually often acting in a, um, in a way or communicating in a way or showing up in a way that might not be very helpful or um, effective. Yep. So it really starts with being, you know, attuned and connected with yourself and accepting your experience for what it is and not judging, um, which is a really high bar, but it's, I think we, we all know that that's really vital, right? Yep. Like Brene Brown's been around a long, long enough. To, uh, you know, we know already, <laughs> right, that that's really important. Um, and then the next piece would be, it's the social piece. It's like who, it's the who. It's like who in my life, who can I join up with or connect with or talk with? And do I have people in my life where I can really be myself about this stuff and not feel like I'm going to be, um, you know, told off or, or judged or whatever. Right. So there's that social connection, like feeling and knowing you're not alone is really, really important. And that gives us energy. And it's, it's like, it's like kind of fueling the battery. Um, so there's that. And then there is the part around, um, really going into reflection around, um, who am I? Where am I? What are my, what is my context and what makes sense for me um, right now? You know, like in terms of what I have access to and what I'm able to do. Now, the thing I think that's really important to name at this juncture is the, the, the whole like rabbit hole that we can get into around, it's not enough. I'm just one person. What difference is it going to make? So I think we need to develop ways of having dialogue with that voice and being able to say, you know what, like, it's true. Like, there is no one um, thing or person or entity. It's, it's, 
it's like, I get that you feel that way. You know, if you're talking to yourself about it, I get that, but you know what, like I am part of this much bigger web. And so having that bigger context is something I strongly encourage and that you can think of that as getting up on the balcony and getting that higher perspective, which I think is harder to do when we're younger. Like, you know, um, that's what I've noticed is for younger people, it's like, this all feels super immediate and like unique and unprecedented and all of that. But if you zoom out and you look at human history and you look at kind of big movements in the past, and I, I think it's very, very important to get that bigger perspective and context, um, both in terms of time, like the human time scale, but also in scale and scope. So yes, I am one person, but I'm part of that much bigger picture is a very healthy, grounded um, perspective to take when, you know, as much as you can. That well, there's, will, there's right. so many data points, right? Like I think people can, you can get frustrated from that perspective, but look at what happened to, um, you know, air quality and things during COVID when people weren't yeah. commuting. I mean, and that was the power truly of millions and billions of people sitting at home yeah. and not going out. And I think, you know, there's so many anecdotes like that where you might think, well, who who cares if I drive my car in every day or something yeah. like that? But then you can look at the opposite and see, well, it actually does make a difference. So I guess that the question is yet, yeah, are we going to act? Are we going to move forward? I, I think yeah. it's so powerful. But I think it's important to recognize that it's very um, natural and um, kind of intuitive to go there. Sure. You know, and so our brains will do that no matter what. Like, it's very hard to not think what difference does it make if I drive or if I fly because you, we already know enough about the scale of the situation. It's like the cat's out of the bag. So it's very hard for us just cognitively to not go there. And some people especially are very fixated on the the metrics of what difference does this make versus that. And I personally, I've just let that go. Like I, I don't fixate on um, trying to identify what exactly, you know, whether or not I should get on that flight or, you know, cost benefit analysis of me flying versus eating meat versus not having a child. Like I will literally drive myself insane if I do that. We all, you know, right. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I tend to take a more kind of broad approach of what does my life look like and feel like if I'm actually living in alignment with myself and with my highest, values and my highest purpose? What is life? How do I design my life that way? And to recognize that I happen to think that we get a lot of um, a real boost, um, a lot of energy from living in alignment, just period. Like my experience of living, knowing I'm in alignment, like right now I happen to be wearing, um, I'm wearing Eileen Fisher. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Right. And I, and I wear, I almost live in Eileen Fisher. And it's interesting because, you know, I was doing an interview the other day and someone was talking about fashion. Like, yeah, like the clothes we wear. And I, and I literally had to look down and be like, wow, like, it's pretty cool that the clothes I'm wearing right now, I know are, you know, uh, not contributing to the problem. Yep. Like that feels good. Um, And I'm not saying everyone needs to go out and buy Eileen Fisher, you know, but thankfully a lot of brands are starting to get on board, you know, thank God. But, um, but I think there's just something about what I'm trying to say is turn your attention towards what does it feel like to be in alignment? 
Yep. You know, versus is this going to have the what difference does it make kind of thing? Absolutely. We talk a lot about values-based intentional, you know, living, which is what what is the easy one some what are the easiest things for you to do in your own life? What do you, what matters the most to you? Maybe you are a slow fashionista um, like yourself. Maybe you're someone who cares a lot about uh, personal plastic um, waste. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can attack this um, from a personal level, but I totally agree. Like nobody's going to be able to do it all. Um, You know, the people that try to, I do think probably end up burning themselves out just because Mm -hmm. it's, there's just so much to think about. So just, just understanding that there's, there's the perfection piece is just never going to happen. So mm-hmm. how do we move mm-hmm. forward and do it in measured ways, right? Yeah. So uh, there's a couple things I would add to the to the quasi process here, which <laughs> I clearly need to write up like as a five <laughs> step. But for now, um, it's the, the the other two things that come to mind are, um, you know, we've got tuning to yourself, like really being connected with your experience, reflecting on what feels tenable for you and an alignment in your life. Who who are you with and communicating with and connecting with and being in community with? Then I would say um, it's really important to be very mindful about the ways in which we engage and talk with other people about these issues and topics. So you mentioned echo chamber earlier. We do need to get out of the echo chamber. So it's not an either or where you're either in your bubble with like-minded people or you're not, it's actually, if you think about the communities that we're in, um, again, they're, they're giving us energy and fueling our work, but we all should be out there having interactions with people who, um, we should be having interactions with people who think differently and who have very different perspectives. And that in itself is, is quite a skill. Because often we have very strong feelings, we're feeling a very high stakes, a lot of urgency, and may not be feeling particularly patient or curious about other people's perspective and experience. And in actuality, like those qualities of patience and curiosity and inquiry and really drawing people out and really coming from a place of I'd like to understand you and your perspective before I tell you all these things I know about what's going on is the most effective way, hundred percent of being, a, you know, of actually engaging people in, in any meaningful way. Absolutely. We talk a lot about this, which is how do I convince other people who may or may not be bought into this to, to act. And I think that's the, exactly the right answer. Like, yeah. Listen it's- to them, understand where they're coming from. We talk a lot about um, one of our favorite anecdotes, the podcast listeners have heard me say this a million times, but like how your dad was probably accidentally eco because he used to tell you to put your sweater on in the winter mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and not, uh, you know, use so much electricity or gas on the heat. Like there's all sorts of really interesting ways you can kind of listen to somebody, see their background and think, mm-hmm. oh, well, maybe you're interested in the, um, you know, yeah. the energy piece of it, right? But and then kind of going that way. <laughs> exactly. But you can't do that unless you've done step one, yeah. which is really being in touch with your own sense of maybe imp- impatience or frustration or urgency, because that's going to leak out and in- influence your interactions if, if that's what's happening. Um, the other thing I would just want to clarify is that I do not think it's about convincing people. Okay. So I think the framing yep. of persuade, convince, um, even this phrase I hear a lot of bringing people along. Mm, yeah. Um, I hear it in corporate a lot. Um, 
I do not think that's a healthy frame. So I think it's much more about, I like the, the, you know, um, thinking of this as engaging. So how do I engage? How do I partner? How do I guide? Um, And I actually have, there's a website that uh, I put together with a grant called Project Inside Out. It's projectinsideout.net. It's very early days, but it talks about guiding. Okay. And it uses that lens of what does it mean to be a guide? And, and it's, I'm trying to um, sort of shift the, the frame from motivating, persuading and convincing to guiding because um, a lot of my work is draws from the public health sector and motivational interviewing. Um, this is a hugely evidence-based body of work that has found that when people feel that they're being trying to be convinced, persuaded, pitched, um, sold, cheerleaded, um, that they tend to go into resistance and shut down even, even against their better wishes. Like they might actually be super interested, but they might find themselves getting kind of contracted and shut down when they pick up that energy from people. So coming at it from that mindset of, I'm not trying to convince you, I'm not trying to persuade you. I really just want to see, you know, learn about what your experience is and then guide and, and guiding is really, you know, it's a much more compassionate and generous way of looking at how do we, how do I understand your experience? And, you know, and one of the, the, the tricks in <laughs> guiding I'll share is that you ask people for permission first before you share what you want to tell them. So okay. for example, you know, I might be talking to someone and I'm, and I might say, so I just learned like this whole thing about plastic, or I just learned something about the carbon situation. Um, would you be open to hearing about it? Do you want to hear about it? You know, um, you don't necessarily have to say, do I have your permission? You know, but it's, it's like ask checking in with people first. Yeah. And then chances are someone will say yes. And then they're giving themselves sort of unconscious permission to be more open to what it is that we have to say. Absolutely. And I love, I love the framing there. It, it makes them feel like they're part of the, the conversation versus being talked at or told, told things to, right. um, which I feel like is sorely needed in today's day and age <laughs> yeah. with, with all of the loud, loud folks. Um, so I love that piece and you're totally right. I mean, there's not going to be any kind of sea change um, at scale unless we can really help guide people and and make sure that they come to these conclusions on their own. Cause mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to convince, to convince or whatever you want to call it. You're not going to be able to create that change by banging people over the head with, right. um, with things. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and the final thing I would say goes back to, um, allowing ourselves the, the space to have our feelings and reactions and to be mindful of being almost like a positivity um, police. Okay. Like that is not helpful. You know, that, that's not, um, resilient. Um, that's, that's actually becoming almost, um, it's like a defense mechanism against just feeling normal ups and downs and highs and lows. And, and when we start police policing ourselves and each other, it can just create a real, um, sort of, um, it kind of limits our, our capacity. So if you, if you think about it 
you know, in terms of like community resilience and psychological resilience, you know, you want to be able to sort of expand and contract and kind of do the, go through the ups and downs. And, and part of that is, um, making it okay to sometimes feel down or, um, upset and whatever, and just know that that comes with the territory. Um, and I, and I'm not, you know, I'm clearly being focusing on positivity and inspiration is extremely important, um, and vital. Um, but I also want to make a call for allowing space for naming and talking about what's hard. So when I advise, you know, organizations and leadership groups and so forth, I often will advise that we normalize and name and acknowledge like this, this may be kind of intense. This might be overwhelming. Um, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm in, you know, so invested and, you know, what's your experience and, um, let's see what we can do together kind of thing, as opposed to just pushing solutions and positivity all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's, there's always an element, I think, of, of real talk <laughs> and wanting yeah. to, to be realistic with people when, when, when talking about these issues. But um, Renee, we've had such an amazing chat with you. And I think you and I could probably talk about this for hours on end. For sure. <laughs> um, but we want to be m- mindful of our, of our audience and, um, you know, really give them time to digest what we just talked about, because I feel like there's so many really interesting tidbits in here. Um, the last question we love to ask our guests is, truly one that it spans spans all topics but i'm curious to know what excites you the most about the ethical and sustainable movement right now from where you sit um well it just feels like everything's picking up speed yes you know and i'm really inspired by um the sea change of more and more people from diverse backgrounds um joining in and naming and normalizing and talking about these issues. You know, the more that we talk about it openly, we're giving ourselves and others permission to go there as well. Um, So to me, the level of public conversation, like this conversation we're having, um, that's what really inspires me and that people are open to this, that we're seeking out um, wisdom and insight and that we're having, you know, that we're just talking about these things is incredibly inspiring for me. Absolutely. Same here. Well, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And um, we are looking forward to sharing this story with our audience. And um, folks, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Lertzum's work or checking out some of the links we mentioned, we'll have everything linked to in show notes. But thank you so much again, Renee. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And as a special thank you to our listeners, use code GOODTOGETHER to get 10% off all products in Brightly's brand new shop full of planet positive swaps for your home. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. 
Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious. <laughs>